Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on Profiles, we're listening to two conversations with experimental filmmakers. In the second half of the program, we'll hear a conversation with filmmaker Tony Buba. Buba has been making films set in his hometown of Braddock, Pennsylvania for over 40 years. His films often blur the lines between documentary, fiction, and fantasy. But first, we'll hear a conversation with filmmaker Joseph Bernard. WFIU's Yael Cassander spoke with Bernard earlier this year. guest today is the artist Joseph Bernard. Since the 1970s, visual artist Joseph Bernard has created over a hundred silent Super 8 films that work to radically expand our understanding of cinema as an expressive form. Bernard is also a painter. He studied at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago with experimental filmmaker Stan Brackage. For 35 years, Professor Emeritus Bernard taught fine arts at Detroit's College for Creative Studies. Abstract collage sensibilities are evident in his paintings, films, and photographs, and he's inspired by poetry and music. His films have been exhibited at museums and festivals around the country, and he's visiting the Indiana University Bloomington campus for the screening of a series of his short films at the IU Cinema. Welcome. Thank you. Although your work is quite abstract, and well, some some is some is some is pretty right out there. Yeah. We see things we recognize. Yes, but yes. some might call it opaque, at least in its structure. And you work in a medium that is not widely shown. <laughs> you recently told a reporter that whether you're a filmmaker, a painter, a sculptor, a dancer, or whatever, it should be personal. It should be almost embarrassingly personal. So I love to start there, to talk about the contrast between a fairly inaccessible medium and this inspiration that you call embarrassingly personal. Okay. We're all used to what the movies in general provide. What do you do if you don't have that kind of budget or you don't have that kind of inclination you work with a camera, you, you learn to work it yourself, and eventually you'll be editing it yourself. You'll probably even take it on the road and project it to audiences yourself. So it becomes a, a one-person activity. And you draw from what's around you primarily, what you see, what you're thinking about, what you've been listening to or reading, what gives shape to who you are. And that becomes a very personal, unique kind of experience. Never once was was anything scripted or storyboarded, as they, they, they say. It, it was um, just picking up a camera, finding something uh, within that frame, and then connecting it with something else, another find. 
But an organic process is what you Very you're intuitive, very organic, mm-hmm. very unplanned, and guaranteed to have built-in issues, mistakes, problems. Mm-hmm. Um, not to worry about that, except for the the expense of the film running through the camera. I mean, this is this is no budget filmmaking that we're talking about. <laughs> Super 8 with a little two-and-a-half-minute cartridge that, that's popped in and then sent off to the lab, and you would eventually see what you got. So very different from today. Look at the back of the camera and see what you just did. And very different from big-budget movies that have sort of tapped into... And I've got nothing against them. I, I, I love them. But to come back to, to something that's small, intimate, personal, like a poem, like a watercolor, as opposed to a, a, a mural on the side of a building, mm-hmm. scale is down. But there's an intensity to some of what I do and what some of these other people have done. But it comes out of their own dreams. They're not trying to, in essence, save the world or provide a a 90-minute, two-hour version of World War II. It's something much more basic. It is hard to overstate the degree of difference mm-hmm. between the films that people see at the multiplex and the films that you do. And I think that part of maybe the disconnect for a lot of people would be that the kinds of films that you make aren't necessarily so accessible unless you go to a museum or a specialty film festival. And even the medium of the Super 8 film is something that those of us growing up in the 70s and uh, thereabouts would have been familiar with in terms of home movies. So I think it would be great to explain exactly the kinds of films you make and describe how you got into making them and how you happened upon this medium. Um, I don't have a a quick, easy answer for the kind of film that I make. They're, for the most part, brief. Some of them maybe as as short as a minute and a half, two minutes, uh, short pieces. And they also happen to be silent, which, which is a an almost unbearable thing for for most people to deal with. We are very accustomed to having explosions when we see car chases and and buildings come down and lovers rolling around. Sound becomes a part of what we see when we go to the movies, and we feel cheated when it's not there. It's not there, in my case, for very specific reasons— and this goes back to the beginning of, of my filmmaking. I came in through uh, a very different uh, entrance than, than most people do. I was a, a painter. I was schooled as a painter. For four semesters, I took as a history requirement a class being taught by someone whose work I was only vaguely familiar with. This is that guy, Stan Brackage. It was the most incredibly stimulating couple of hours once a week throughout these these semesters. His lectures on people like uh, Charlie Chaplin, 
Maya Darren, uh, Buster Keaton, Sergei Eisenstein. Mm. These lectures were sublimely meaningful to me, you know, like the best piece of formal education I've ever had. You were formally trained as a painter yeah. at the Art Institute. Brackage was teaching you about the history of cinema. Did he teach you technique as well, or no. are you an autodidact in that regard? Uh, I'm an ignoramus uh, <laughs> in, in that regard. I, I had no guidance. I had no mentoring, no advice. Technically, I, I was uh, quite the fool and proud of it. Picasso made this statement, uh, don't teach children, learn from them. <laughs> Give a kid some, some crayons or pencils and paper and, and see what happens. I floundered my way into this kind of filmmaking and then eventually taught it at the college in Detroit. And uh, we stayed intentionally low-key, small-scale, some used sound, some didn't. But the idea was not to try to compete with Hollywood. None of us individually have that kind of budget or studios to, to back us or access to the right actors or any of that. So you want to use this tool and you want to say something about your yourself. There's a different way to go about it. Right. When I was first acquainted with your work, the very first thing that it reminded me of were the art films that were made in the 20s by the Dadaists. Sure. People like Fernand Léger and uh, Man Ray. Mm -hmm. Yep. I don't know if you feel a kinship with that kind of filmmaking. Yes, those are the people. That's the beginning. Those were the cave paintings (laughs) that, that I responded to, but there were let's say, another two generations in between. And that was terribly meaningful to me. A lot of that work could be referred to as animation, which in a nice way means to bring to life, you know, to to animate stills, to animate something that's just sitting there. And, And how do you do it? Either you provide a number of those things per frame with sequential framing, or you move the camera and that little still thing is is moving. It grows from there. But th- those people and that uh, piece of time, that was the beginning of the, the history or almost the rebellion a- a- against a, a large s- studio kind of filmmaking. I find, on the other hand, your, your films more rewarding than some of those Dadaist films. For me, your films are not only abstract and have a lot of these interesting segues, but they have a lot of heart. So going back to that sense of the embarrassingly personal, yeah, okay. for example, when, when we look at, say, the film Ritual, you know, we'll see things that to me belong more, say, in one of those films from the 20s, like the close-up of a clock face and these things that almost look like animation. But then we'll see the sky through the trees, and you'll suddenly be transported to the perspective of maybe a child lying in the grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a lot of romance in your work. I I am a romantic. Uh, 
with classical overtones. <laughs> uh, they usually ha- have those as, as opposites. That particular little film was an absolute gift. It was all made in camera. Uh, by that I mean there isn't a physical splice in it. I had a camera that was capable of backtracking, of, of going back and providing a double exposure. So, in other words, I could shoot something over here, and then I could put the camera to, on you and combine an image of you and this landscape over here. Mm-hmm. I would carry a lot in, in my mind or in my memory. What I had just shot had a certain amount of darks and lights in it, and I would know when, in the upcoming double exposure that what was dark would now provide a space for this overlapping images. It was this beautiful mental exercise. And there, there's a moment in that film where outside is a very gray, drizzly winter day. There's snow on the ground. It's Detroit. Mm-hmm. There's a, a large vacant lot and uh, on the other side of the lot is a young man w- w- walking from right to left, uh, and he's got a German shepherd yes. with him. Crosses the frame, and then as your eyes sort of following that movement, then a truck, a large truck, comes through the foreground and passes, and at the very end, because I knew... Where I was standing was near a corner. I knew he would apply his brakes. The brake lights would come on. Boom, there's the red of the truck. And I stopped shooting and then went home. I found a red light that would fill the screen. And that became the next moment following that. I don't know. It's, 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 it's like playing chess with yourself. The way that you describe making those decisions in camera with the truck stopping and the light coming on makes it sound as though you're dealing with things in a formal way, meaning you're interested in light and shape and movement and those elements of design that we know from painting. But I'm going to insist that you're also evoking some very strong feelings in your work. There are a couple of portrait films that you could use as very good evidence (laughs) against me (laughs) in making your case for uh, romanticism or something. Uh, One is a portrait of my mother, A.B. Portraits, and one of my daughter, uh, J.S.B. at nine. Again, in, in those cases, no splices, no editing, and almost embarrassingly personal. You know, you're just reacting to someone who's reacting to the camera. Nothing was said ahead of time. It bothered my mother to be photographed, Mm. but I just plowed ahead and ignored her embarrassment, and uh, and she kind of got used to it. It's a very simple thing. I'm at her house... Gets in the car. We go to another relative, and the kids are playing. And and throughout the process of the day, she gets tired. She goes outside, and she's in a 
beach chair out in the backyard. And she's beginning to fall asleep. And uh, back out, and there are, in the foreground, five tomatoes sitting on the windowsill inside. And they range in size from the biggest to the smallest. And uh, I'm the the oldest of the five in my family. I'm a big tomato. The big tomato. I, yeah. And, uh, and as that's being focused on, she disappears. She just whites out, and that's the end of the, of the film. And uh, died not too long after that. I see. Joe, the way that you talked about the films that focus on people, your mother and your daughter, reminds me of someone who was a contemporary, but actually sort of a precursor, an immediate precursor, which was Andy Warhol. And I think that might be a point of reference for some folks. People know the film Sleep or Kiss, Eat. Eat. So the idea of dwelling on a subject, getting past that sort of social discomfort feeling and letting the camera linger. How much was Warhol an influence for you or a mentor or an acquaintance? He was the antithesis. He he was as far away as I could get. Yet I was partly responsible in undergraduate school in getting him to come as a visiting artist. And he did with his whole entourage, Viva, Gerald, and six, seven people all all came. And uh, I met him. Two of us students were in a printmaking room, and Andy walked in with the gang and asked what we were doing. You know, we showed him, and uh, the other student who was working, Andy liked what he was doing, and so he... He gave him a copy, and then Andy signed something and gave it, you know, back to him a can of soup or something that you know they had a bag of. Uh, he was too showbiz uh, for for me. With Warhol, he claimed to want to bore you, and if he achieved that, he had success. And uh, I wasn't interested in in playing external kind of games, so I found other people who who I chased after. And one of them happened to be Brackage and, of course, Sherrits. Your, your film Splices for Sherrits from yeah. 1980. Yeah. It was made by constructing and rephotographing thousands of cement splices arranged into four movements. So things like showing splices, which are the, the connecting points yes. between yes. parts of film, I understand those devices to be calling attention to the medium of film per se? Well, yeah, and it's also saying you're seeing something here that you're not going to see when you go to the movies. You never have seen a splice. In the case of splices for Sherrits, I, I, I took an element of filmmaking because this was his style, this was his manner. So I made literally thousands of, of of little joints, little splices. I put them in a viewer. I re-photographed those images. And I re-photographed them in, in four different movements, separated by black. They, they wind up playing out fast, medium, slow, very fast. 
those are the four movements in Splices for Sharers. I feel as though you are, in fact, sort of reveling in the medium and celebrating the medium in a way that, for example, when we go to um, a narrative blockbuster film, we're not necessarily reveling in the medium so much for the most part as we are in narrative. The story. Right. You, on the other hand, are elevating the medium and saying, take a look at this. This is a film, guys. In the same way that, for example, an abstract expressionist painting or something is calling attention to the brush stroke and the the raw canvas. I had a chance to look at a slideshow of your paintings, and I was reminded of Paul Clay and uh, even Klimt and Rothko. Let's talk about the way that your paintings relate to your film. Well, painting was was the beginning. I was formally educated as a painter for a, a good number of years. My undergraduate studies were, actually ran close to seven years, followed by two years of grad studies in Chicago, also as a painter. Anyway, all of that very much had to do with process and materials. Mm-hmm. That's the correlation that we're, we're talking about. The physicality applied to film or the collage sensibility when applied to the painting. From the very beginning, it was to paste things on and to tape things down and to use things from different sources. So you like Rauschenberg? That, uh, that's, you know, God number one uh, uh, in those days. I thought I was somehow related to, to him. Yeah, Rauschenberg, uh, Jim Dine, yeah. uh, Diebenkorn as a painter-painter. Mm. Uh, all of the, these people, and, and each one of them, it was their their commitment to what they were doing. And uh, that became sort of important in my own work habits and development, trying to find my voice, trying to find what's most unique, and to build on that. I mean, after all, uh, we don't want to go through life emulating someone else. We want to find out who we are. And so how do you do that? You pay attention to your own dreams. You pay attention to your own likes and your own passions. What am I listening to? Why am I attracted to these things? And uh, why do I use these materials in the way that I do. Anyway, so you're watching some sort of an evolution take place, and it's someone uh, eventually becoming an artist. Anyway, it's, it's, it's also the kind of advice you would give to students. Pay attention to what you really care about, and don't worry about much else. I am so glad... Joe, that you brought up dreams, and you said pay attention to your dreams. Sounds like a Hallmark card, but... (laughs) I see in both your paintings and in your films a dreamlike sensibility. And it might be more evident in the films where we have these sudden jump cuts from sky to clock face to man with German shepherd. But also in your paintings... In dreams, there is a kind of a puzzle-like accretion of images yeah. that 
don't necessarily seem to follow logically or intuitively, yep. but are nonetheless juxtaposed. Yep, yep. I see that in your paintings. There's this concept of the rebus. Yep. So a string of images that we are to make sense of, but seem like they're in some kind of a code. You're absolutely right. It's both done and not done, consciously and unconsciously. I can't say how it began or anything, but I think that's a a wonderful observation. When you work as a painter or as a filmmaker and collagist, and especially if you don't care about your audience or lack of audience, this is something that stirs you somehow bringing these things together. There, there's this beautiful little collision. Uh, Joseph Albers said in mathematics, one plus one equals two. Everyone knows that. It's obvious. But what they don't know that is in art, one plus one may equal one. It may equal two. It may equal three somehow. These two things may bring other references. It may offer a whole complexity. So, if nothing else, we know the difference between math and art. Uh, Tell me, Joe, about when you choose to paint and when you choose to make a movie. What's your studio life like? Well, that's where the whole show comes to a a screeching halt. Uh, I stopped making uh, films in 1985. And then in 2010, I had two shows all done within the uh, two-year period. Kind of went out in a blaze of glory. That was the end of painting. I don't have a studio life now. I'm here at uh, Indiana University Cinema with things made 40 years ago that are finally now being celebrated. And I've gone to other schools with the University of Michigan and Dartmouth and Third Man Records uh, in Nashville and Detroit, Jack White's, uh, Mm -hmm. where they're showing these silent films in, in, in these places where they have recording studios and there are concerts. You no longer make films or or paint. What do you do for a creative outlet? You know, all of those things that are part of me, all those honed sensibilities, they get used day to day. Maybe in how you listen to the news or, or how you interact with with other people. There's a thing called Vimeo. One of the opportunities that people have to see little films and videos by unknowns. I write back and forth to these peoples and they're responding to my old little films. I'm responding to their brand new little films. Well, it sounds like you're spending a lot of time curating your work, collecting it, also restoring it has been a Big effort lately. I've got 40 worked on, and that has been finished. There are still more than 60 films that I'm going to have to go through, check every splice to make sure they, they're strong enough, inspect them for fungus and whatever else, and eventually all of those will go out to Academy Film Archives mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. 
the Oscar people. That's where my first 40 films are. They're in good hands. They can be studied. They can be protected from here on. But I have 60 more to do, and and not much time to to do it. It's 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 very uh, consuming. Well, I wish I wish you good luck with Thank with you. that effort, uh, and yeah. I'm so pleased that you came yeah. in and wow. spoke with us today. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. That was WFIU's Yael Cassander speaking with filmmaker Joseph Bernard. You are listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. This week on Profiles, we're listening to conversations with two filmmakers. Next, we'll hear a conversation I had with filmmaker Tony Buba. Our conversation was recorded in October of last year. Our guest today is Tony Buba. Tony is a documentary filmmaker who often blends both documentary and fiction. His films have been shown at international film festivals, including Sundance, Toronto, and Berlin. Most of his films, like Lightning Over Braddock and Struggles in Steel, are about his small hometown, Braddock, Pennsylvania. Tony Buba, hello, and welcome to Profiles. Well, thank you. I, I want to try to drop into an FM voice now. You know, Hi there. I'm Tony Buba. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, first, uh, considering most of your movies are about Braddock, I just kind of wanted to know who are the people of Braddock and what is Braddock? You know, trying to get hold it's an interesting story, a side story. There's a, a film out that airs on Turner Classic Movies every once in a while. I think it's called Three Men from Borneo. And in the film, this guy is supposed to be the genius. It's a traveling circus show, and this guy is supposed to have a memory. So the person gets up in the audience and says, I bet you don't know where Braddock, Pennsylvania is. <laughs> so he goes in, of course I know where Braddock, Pennsylvania is. It's the home of the first Andrew Carnegie steel mill and the first Carnegie library in the country. And it's located on the Monongahela River, six miles from Pittsburgh. <laughs> so he gives this feel. And I've been wanting to uh, see how I can get access to that to use it in one of my films. But but Braddock is a, is a, a small steel town right outside of Pittsburgh. And in, in the other area, uh, anybody familiar with the geography of of Western Pennsylvania, I know Pittsburgh is surrounded by rivers and hills. So unlike a Detroit where the city goes on for miles and miles, Pittsburgh proper is very small, but it's surrounded by 120 other communities, all with their own city government, their own police force, their own chief of police, et cetera, et cetera. And the populations at one time, of course, were much larger, uh, but now they run anywhere from maybe 500 to you know, 30,000 people. So Braddock is one of those municipalities. It really is only six miles from downtown the city of Pittsburgh and one mile from the edge of the city. If it's a different type of geographic location, it would probably be part of the city and just a neighborhood there. But at one time, the population peaked in 1920 where there was 25,000 people in less than a square mile. Before the mills were built. The population of Braddock is what it is now, about 2,000. And the mills were built in, in 1870, and the population swelled to 20,000. But that was 1920, and it was really, uh, the housing wasn't great back then. So people, it was always a place of, of you move to for a little bit, then move out somewhere else. Then the population dropped steadily from there. When I was growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, it was around 12,000. Then everything collapsed, now it's about 2,000. And does it have its own identity? 
as a it, town or Braddock does it feel is, like Pittsburgh? No, it has its own identity, especially if you ask people where they're from. They're from Braddock. I mean, they just will emphasize it. Uh, in some ways, Braddock's decline is part of a success because you had the school system doing a decent enough job that people were able to go to college, get an education, and you know, there just weren't enough jobs in, in the region, especially if you're African-American. The mills were finally making decent money, uh, the steel workers. So as the salaries of the steel workers went up, they were able to afford housing outside of the town, and nobody wanted to live you know, where all the pollution was, so they ended up moving to the suburbs, and, uh, except for African-Americans who were redlined and were not able to buy the house in the suburbs, and they bought other homes in Braddock. So that was a, it took place in the 50s and 60s, and you had white flight uh, mm-hmm. taking place, and that, that led to some of the decline. And, you know, you, you went to college after. Yeah, I went to college. I didn't start. There's, there's actually a, a dividing line in, in going to college. When I was, uh, I was in high school, I was born before World War II. And my brother is a baby. He was born after war. We were separated by the war. So all of us who were born before World War II, there really wasn't the emphasis on going to college. Our senior trip, you know, we, I don't know if you went to high school, I don't know if you took a senior trip. The senior trip in Braddock High School was the mill. This is your senior trip because that's where they expected all the guys to go work. If you're a woman, they took you to the secretarial pool in the mill. I mean, this was this was your senior trip. It wasn't going to Washington D.C. wasn't going to New York. It was the mill, and this this was all the way till 1960. So if you were born like in my period, you, you thought you'd be either working at one of the factories or uh, in the mill. You get ready to move on with your career, either working in is the mill. Is that what factory. happened to you? I, I, I was a little different. I. Uh, I graduated high school and didn't know what to do. And I was only 17, so you couldn't even join the service yet. And I had a cousin who was in the National Guard. He was already in the service, National Guard. He says, well, when you turn 18, why don't you join the Pennsylvania Air National Guard, active like two weeks every during the summer. So that's what I did. And, of course, I didn't like it. <laughs> so, I, so I went for the seven months, then ended up going for, uh, you know, staying in it for six years, So I was, yeah. which was fortunate because if I hadn't done that, then I would have ended up in Vietnam. So I was working, delivering bathtubs for a plumbing supply house, uh, racking balls in a pool room. And you're uh, still living in Braddock? Still living, still living at home, yeah, yeah. So setting, setting pins in a bowling alley, these kind of jobs. And uh, then my uncle got me a job at this uh, factory called Wiggins in Homewood. Uh, I was working the assembly line, and I really still hadn't didn't have much ambition. I thought uh, my brother was going to Carnegie Mellon, and he found a book on a bus called The Stranger. So I read mm-hmm. The Stranger by Camus, and it's just like you know, oh man, you know, why should I do it? I'll be dead by the time you know. Reading something existential is is without any kind of reference. It's really uh, it really blows your mind. Oh, my mother died today. Maybe it was yesterday. I mean, I still re- I almost had the book memorized. It was such an influence on me. And I thought, you know, we had the Berlin crisis, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Suez Crisis, the atomic bomb was just it was dropped not too long ago in Japan. I'm thinking we're just going to blow each other up by the time of 21. Why even bother with anything? I'll be dead, you know. So now I'm 24, still in the factory, and his friend of mine, Ernie, we had saved a lot of money. We were going to buy Corvettes because that was like the powered cars. We are going to buy a Corvette, each one of us. We said, well, before we buy the Corvettes, why don't we try night school? If we do okay, we'll go to college. If not, we'll buy the Corvettes. So I started night school at Pitt and uh, went there for about you know a year. Then the grades weren't too bad. So, well, and so same with Ernie. So he went off to a uh, uh, the community college, and I went up to Edinburgh and started college. I was 24 and a half when I 
You, you gave up your Corvettes. To I go gave to up the Corvette. I gave up the Corvette and spent the money for college. Yeah, <laughs> that Stingray. I still want that Stingray, but now it'd just be a cliche and a Stingray. I'm a, a, an old man. <laughs> yeah, so that, it went to Edinburgh, and uh, it was the best decision I ever made. It got there, and like I said, I got a work study job at this campus TV station, and, and also there was a, a person there named David Weinkoff who just got hired to run the film unit. So he pulled me out of the group that was in the TV station working and taught me how to do audio. So how old were you when you first started doing film? I made my first film, I was probably 28. And what happened was I had been involved in a lot of the anti-war protests and going to DC and protesting. And when I was, I would take a lot of photos. So I had a paper due for a psychology class on positive, negative reinforcement. So instead of doing a paper, I did a slideshow with the anti-war things, and then I turned that into a short film. So when I graduated, I applied to graduate school at a high university and got accepted. And it was the person who headed the department was a person named Joe Anderson, who had a quirky sense of humor. He was an interesting guy. And, you know, it's, just, it's 1972, and schools were still, there was a little more freedom for department heads. So he took anybody with a silly last name. He accepted Kathy Kodak, Tommy Tuttle, Tommy Tucker, and Tony Booba. He said he didn't care what I submitted. He just wanted to see what a Booba looked like. And that was his. And I showed up. I showed up. And, and what he was really doing was getting people from a varied background. There were sculptors. There were painters. Nobody had a, any media experience. He was interested to get a, an older group of people who were all in their late 20s, early 30s, and put them together in one space and see what kind of work they could create out of that just by all the ideas bouncing off each other. And it was mostly, uh, we're on the tail end of the, the experimental films with, uh, with Stan Brackage and uh, other experimental filmmakers. What happened was I took one class from this George Semsel, and it was supposed to be the history of film, except he taught the history of the home movie. So everybody brought in their home movies and discussed home movies and how they've been evolved as a genre. And that really got me interested in biographical and autobiographical work. So I sort of expanded on that home movie class and did uh, uh, the work on Braddock. And, and once again, it, you know, it, I wish I could say my life was on this big trajectory and I knew what I wanted to do immediately. And even there, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And it was helped by the fact that this person I was living with at the time, we broke up, I was depressed. So I started returning home, <laughs> sometimes on weekends, and just having the one weekend I went home, I, I saw that J-Roy was having his opening of a used furniture store, and I had to do my first sync sound project. It was like shooting you know, with audio and the camera. So I decided, that it, and I thought it was just a little you know, absurd having a grand opening of a used furniture store. So, you know, once again, I had been coming home, and I knew Jimmy Roy from before, and I always knew he was a character, so I thought he would fit. And I'd seen a lot of films on Boonwell at that time, and it was, to me it was surreal, this, you know, doing a big thing. And, and what, what was surreal about it? Well, just doing, it was going to save the town, this used furniture store, because Braddock was already in this decline in the 70s. It, and I noticed that how much it was declining. It's, in some ways, it's if, you know, you haven't been home for a while, so you hadn't seen your grandparents in a long time, and nobody notices how they've slowed down or have aged, but you really notice it immediately just because you haven't seen them for five or six years, that kind of thing. And that's how it was with me with Braddock. I come back, and I said, oh, man, this is like the town is slowly falling apart, and these characters as I knew growing up and had a lot of fun with BSing all the time, 
uh, are going to disappear. This piece, and when I finished it, it was uh, it was interesting because some people thought I was exploiting the character. It was because uh, there's a lot of comedy in it. This is funny. Welcome back to Profiles. We're talking with documentary filmmaker Tony Buba. Tony, you were just talking about how you introduced comedy into your early documentaries, and I, I did kind of want to move on and talk about Lightning Over Braddock. It was very funny, and I, and I know that it's this steel town and. Braddock, uh, there's some sadness in it. Like you said, it's declining, but you started introducing comedy. You're right. I mean, a lot of it comes from just, you know, it seems like most of the comedians come from backgrounds where there's a lot of pain, just to maintain your sanity. And for me, what got a lot to my humor, you know, a lot of it was defensive growing up as as a small guy, (laughs) you know, with all these bigger guys. We used to, you know, play the dozens, you know. What's that? Where you make fun of everybody's mother, it was like a, a game where you'd say something and you say something about that person, and so it almost broke out into a fight all the time. But you really respected if your wit was quick enough to say something that was funnier than what the other person. So you end up honing these little skills uh, of what to say or coming out with a quick joke. And then working in the factory for three years, I mean, you work on the assembly line. You you did work at the mill. I worked. Well, I never worked in a mill. Oh. I never. I tried to get a job in the mill. But my, I think my dad told the employment office not to hire me because he never wanted me in the mill. He wanted us to do something else and not be— Because it was dangerous? It was dangerous. It was hard work. And, and I think maybe he just didn't want his kid around there because he was always goofing around in the mill, too. And so, yeah, he just did not want me to work in the mill. But so my uncle got me this job. And the fact, which actually at that time was a, a, a lot of people were trying to get in. It was a better job than the mill in many ways. It was— but I was working on the assembly line, working here for a couple of years, and you just start getting bored. I mean, it's the same routine day in, day out. And for a lot of people, they'd use this humor, which bordered on being cruel. Could you talk a little bit about uh, the movie? I know just... Could you just explain uh, what Lightning Over Braddock is? Well, it is. It's, a, it's, it's really a hybrid. When I... When I first f- finished it, I didn't think of it as a documentary. That was a category that was put on it when, it, when I, uh, someone saw it and it played in Toronto then it got into Sundance and they put it in the documentary category I thought of it as being fiction <laughs> at that time it, 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 there is some it, aspects it, of documentary right? yeah, there's a lot of aspects of documentary but there's all aspects of fiction too with you know with Sal playing Gandhi Sal being uh, the Rambo character and and uh, <clears throat> the Godfather character could, could you character. explain who, who Sal is and how okay. that fits into the movie yeah Sal there's this character I grew up with in Braddock. He was uh, a, a real. He's real. Oh, yeah, for yeah, he's real. He was uh, one of these guys used to hang on. Anybody that probably lives in Gary, Indiana, or or any of these towns around Mills always knew these characters that hung out on the street. They, in, in my case, he sounds Italian. He's like a mafia wannabe. He was small time like Hood. He had he had a bookie joint and he dealt cards in a back room and this kind of thing. But uh, and he was just out there. And it's a period of time that you had all these, uh, Sal wasn't in World War II, but you had all these vets coming back from World War II and the Korean War. And nobody had diagnosed anybody with post-traumatic stress syndrome. So these they were always like, you know, either popping two and all, seeking all, something to maintain their sanity and also using this weird humor that from the jobs and do that. It's all sort of combining all that enlightening. And most of the documentaries I saw up to that point really had the documentary filmmaker as the voice of God. 
that they were presenting this information and this is the truth. And I'm smarter than you are as the audience because I'm telling you what you should be looking at. So I wanted to try to play with that a little bit and have myself be this documentary filmmaker who is throws out this information, but he's also making a film about this character, Sal, while the mills are closing down. Well, a really big issue is going on in the background. You know, and I just wanted to play with that, that whole thing of the role of the documentary filmmaker. You play a role of a, the, of a filmmaker making, making a documentary. Yeah, because yeah, I'm the filmmaker make, making the documentary. And what happened, eight, seven or eight years earlier, I made a film called Sweet Sal. It was on Sal. It was a documentary on him. And it played a lot of festivals and did really well. And, and at that point, then Sal started thinking that my whole career that I owed him because my whole career was based on the film I made of him. So he's like, he'd been pestering me for years. So we came up with this idea almost together. But, well, Sal, well, let's make a new film where you drive me crazy. I'm a documentary filmmaker, makes a film on this guy, and now I can't get this guy out of his life. And other people who have made films or done radio shows, I'm sure, have had that same experience where, you, where all of a sudden the subject is now part of your life, which you hadn't really intended on when you first did it, so you're somewhat responsible. Uh, so that was there, and the mills were starting to close, and I had been shooting... Uh, a lot of footage on the meal closings, but didn't quite have a storyline. And I knew I wanted to do something combining scenes that were the fiction, the, like the fiction scenes. And, and it was fascinating when I first started showing it, that one person in the audience said, well, you know, what works best is the documentary stuff, especially like when you're on the street and you're being interviewed by the, uh, the news reporter and you talk about uh, growing up on Braddock and the Contra drug connection comes up on the screen. He says, that that works so much better than the other. I said, well, that's the most fiction there is. That, that scene is all scripted. And that, so you, I, that's why I really wanted to have the audience question the validity of documentaries. Yeah, you know, uh, watching the, the film, I didn't know quite what was true and what was what, not true. I knew some things were true, like you're on the street and there's a protest at the yeah, to, so what, to, to, to save a mill. Right, so what I would do, anytime I'd hear of a protest, I would call Sal up and we'd go down and shoot in front of him so he'd be the... So it would be the backdrop. So I'd use that as, you know, because you didn't have the money to uh, to stage that stuff. So anytime there was a protest, I'd go out and film it and have Sal as part of the, the backdrop then. So I just wanted to do that. And also with the conflicts, because I, I do believe most people that end up doing any kind of artwork, they do think their work is so good that they're going to make it. They're going to be big time. And you buy into the whole thing of the American dream of, of this individual success. And I just want to, and I want to play with all that within the film. And could, I, I love this scene that really talks about this is when you see a priest. The scene was yeah, going to confession, and sometimes you you know you you think things out. But what happened if you look at films to see the guy playing the priest is actually in one of my earlier documentaries is Dave Spear who worked at J. Roy's New and Used Furniture. And one of the things I play with in all the films is I have the same people come back being interviewed again or playing a part in something else so you could watch them get older. So I want to show is the town's dying and getting older. I want to show the people getting older and dying. I want to show myself getting older. So I put myself in it a lot. So you see me as a, you know, in the seventies looking like a young porn star with the black hair and mustache to now just looking like an old man. So, so I put myself in it just to watch age. And I got those, I mean, it was not original. I got it from uh, watching Truffaut films and Bergman films. Uh, where they use the same actor all the time. You you go to see 
a priest. I go to see a priest and I say I'm a documentary filmmaker. So the priest then has a whole list of professions that he uses uh, to give a general confession to. So so we know either a psychiatrist, a documentary filmmaker, a welder or whatever. He goes to his cute, the cars and knows how, sort of how to give his penance. And that's what, so that's what I was playing with uh, uh, in there with the, with the confession. Then with the Gandhi scene where Sal gets shot. Yeah, could, Gandhi. You, could you explain the Gandhi scene for people who haven't seen the movie? <laughs> okay, yeah. So I, think it's a good I scene. was playing with, uh, at that time, uh, Cisco and Eber were really popular. So I came up with the idea of of doing a takeoff on Cisco and Eber with two people criticizing a show and Sal daydreaming at home. As I'm on television, he changes the channel. I'm on this show called Lyceum that was on WQED. And so, but I have him changing the channels. So as he changes the one channel, he goes into a fantasy and sees these two people talking about Gandhi Comes to Braddock, a sequel to the original Gandhi. And Sal looked a little bit like Gandhi when I put a, a bald wig on him. So we, we, we did. Every year they have a, uh, they, at that time they were having the fireman's parade in Braddock. So I just tagged on at the end of the parade. So as the last band came by, I had all my vehicles behind it and came down the street. And so nobody knew what to think when they saw this guy with this red and his, his convertible, you know, looking like Gandhi and, uh, and the woman next to him. I, we couldn't find a pillbox hack, so I wanted her to be like Jackie Kennedy sitting next to Gandhi as he gets... Uh, as he gets assassinated, one is just to, to play on the hero worship of both Gandhi and and Jackie Kennedy, and uh, and yeah, and just do uh, this this fantasy part. Yes, yeah, so they ride on Braddock Avenue, and it's when they introduce Steve as the new person that he ends up like shooting Gandhi. And the, my idea at that time, what I was thinking is that these steel workers are losing their jobs, being replaced by younger people in tech industry and in and uh, the sort of yuppie thing that was taking place at that time. And Steve was the person that's replacing the steel worker as he fades out. Steve becomes the, uh, my new favorite and, uh, you know, the, the country's new favorite of, of what's leading with high tech. So I was like playing with all that. You call it a uh, Rust Bowl fantasy. fantasy. Right. Yeah, which, uh, which someone wanted to know why I didn't call it a Rust Belt fantasy versus Rust Bowl. But I was, re- I was referencing the Dust Bowl with uh, that. And it was also, it's also taking from... Uh, a Vin Vendor's film called Lightning Over Water. So I saw that film and took ideas. I mean, I borrow a lot from narrative and experimental. I pay homage, as they say. Mm-hmm. I'd like to play a clip from a music video you directed. The song is called Carhartt Baby, You Broke My Heart by Steve Pellegrino. Here's a clip. Carhartt Baby, you broke my heart I'm so upset I don't know where to start For 30 odd years I've been wearing these threads Now you're telling me our 34s are dead Now you're making bids for tiny little babies You're trying to sell hip clothes to all them ladies You got to remember back to the past When you made your money off the working man's back You pulled the rug right out from under us The mean Hard heart, baby, you broke my heart. Check it out online. <laughs> and welcome back to Profiles. We're talking with documentary filmmaker Tony Buba. Could you just talk about that music video and your relationship with Steve Pellegrino? Yeah, yeah. My relationship with Steve it goes back to the first time I ever had a screening in Pittsburgh. I had these sign posters up. You know, he used to do that. You know, you go around them, and I had all these quotes that were in Italian from my uh, 
for my grandmother, like my grandson is the greatest filmmaker ever. Or then, then I had all these, you know, really my mother saying his films are wonderful. Then I had my father saying, I have no idea what he's going to do with this. I wish he'd get a real job. What's he going to do with social without social security? And so Steve had saw that and he, he really, and he liked it. So he came to the screening and then we hooked up afterwards and I went to one of his performances and that's where I saw him do uh, jumping jack flash on the accordion and also these boots are made for walking. Then plus he had these other songs he wrote about Pittsburgh. Uh, I have a hole in my heart bigger than the Liberty Tubes. You know, so he had these songs and he's a performance artist. He's really, he's really good. So we, we, we've collaborated ever since on a, on a lot of films and he did all the music for one for Voices from a Steel Town and then on uh, uh, the uh, Lightning Over Braddock. And this car hard baby, you broke my heart, was that he's a, he does he hangs drywall for a living, just performance art, uh, but to make a living, he does drywall. And Carhartt does white bibs. They were supposed to stop making them for uh, for workers, and he just got really upset, so he came up with this song, and so we went up and shot in the house that Steve's rehabbing where he bemoans the fact of Carhartt doing it. And the company saw this video. We put, posted it up. The company is, is probably has the most views of anything I've ever made. And uh, and they called Steve up and they, they flew to Pittsburgh, took him out to lunch, gave him a bunch of coveralls and they really liked it. And uh, and he's currently writing uh, music for uh, a new film I'm trying to make called Thunder Over Braddock because Braddock has changed so much over the years. And the people I've known have all, you know, they, they died or more and moved away. And some younger people, some people are moving in, which I really, who I can't really relate to. So he's uh, writing this song called This Is Not My Town Anymore. So it's going to be like a ballad type song. Where, do, do you feel that it's not your town anymore? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do feel it's it's a different, it's the older people there I can still relate to. Right now, it's sort of one block that reminds me of what it was. But there aren't any of the places that I used to go to. Or they're all gone, and most of them were bookie joints. I mean, I just it had it, it. It was a town that was pretty wide open, and there was like a lot of gambling and a lot of stuff. And it was just that's what made it fun, you know. And you had these guys hanging out and standing on a corner all to you know two, three in the morning, all night long. And a lot of it was the World War II vets who couldn't sleep, and so they were all disappeared. So the town has has changed. So. And, uh, and and one microbrewery's opened up in Braddock now, and and to me it's so it's so alien. They, if you saw Betty's Corner Cafe with these guys, you know that's they, one of your films. One of my films where they you know they're throwing down shots of whiskey, then just using a beer as a chaser. You know that was the old Boilermaker they called it. But now you know you have these people talking around about you know the pomegranate beer or the pom- or the pumpkin beer or the spice or the IPA and what type of hops. So. We we're going to start to film out like Lightning Over Braddock started with J. Roy singing Where Have You Gone? And this one will start out with me actually being in this bar. And I will turn around the camera and just say, when I was a young man, we used to go in the alley. We used to shoot craps. We smoked some dope. We ran from the cops. Now all I see are people coming in talking about the quality of hops. This is not my town anymore. <laughs> and they go, this is not my town anymore. <laughs> they talk about all the people that have died that I've made films on. And I do a song and dance number on the front and go into the, the dock. And I'm trying to play with, you know, in, in documentaries, there's been so much of mixing documentary and fiction together now. So, you know, the form is not new or fresh. So how do you keep pushing it? I'm really trying to think of, of doing uh, almost a, a, like a folk opera. 
where maybe we'd have a minstrel person or someone singing the song that would lead into the transitions from one scene to another of the last 20 years of material I've shot. So how do I... So, so, so this next film you're making about Braddock is going to be a collection of of footage you've shot, shot for, for 20, 20 years. years. Yeah, footage I shot for 20 years showing the transition from where it was when lightning ended to where it is today. So how do you tie it together? I mean, in some way, so I'm thinking of of a, a, a rewatch Kapaloo, now I'm going to rewatch uh, Wings of Desire because I don't know if, if if this film Steve and I are dead and we're standing up top and looking down over the town as angels looking up. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how to play this totally. I'm still looking for that that doorway into into it. But Steve's busy writing some music for I it. I mean, and you know this God figure you've mentioned twice now. These God <laughs> figures <laughs> looking over Braddock. Braddock right. I mean, <laughs> you've made you are the filmmaker of Braddock. It's a small it's a town. town. Do you feel like this well, God it's... figure, this storyteller? <laughs> I I am the you know I am the storyteller at the moment. But that's I mean that's changing. There's a new storyteller now. Uh, Latoya Ruby Frazier, from, uh, she's at Chicago. She teaches at the Art Institute now. And Latoya just recently got the MacArthur Genius Grant, and her work is amazing. She's doing. She's where my work sort of ended up to now in the period of the '80s. Her th- photography work picks up at that period into present with her family, who is you know affected by the decline of the mill, is African and the disparity that exists between african-american workers and white workers and uh and she's 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 doing this and it's uh so for me who knows how much longer i'll be on this earth type of thing and she's a young woman in her early 30s and she's going to be carrying on sort of this documentation how do you see your role in the story of braddock and the story of deindustrialization yeah yeah you know I always my, my my role I think is what I try to do is find the micro to show the macro uh is looking for people who might be overlooked but their story is very important in understanding the whole story of 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 the industrialization of, of inequality where instead of focusing on a named person a politician where you look at someone who's working as a roofer and, you know this whole shift in the economy so I'm looking for people who are affected by that uh but not are beaten. The not are just that it just keep fighting and, and keep going and uh, you know and just, and just looking out for the future in some way. But you know, but uh, looking for the absurdities that take place within it and the contradictions because our whole life is contradictory and that, that feeling of, of you not you know what am I supposed to be doing and just and try to bring that out within the film. Tony Buba, thank you for being on Profile. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was WFIU's Josh Brewer speaking with filmmaker Tony Buba in October of 2015. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.